Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. At some point in the 1980s, my brother and I joined the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, DWAS, as it was inelegantly acronymed. We got a fanzine amounting to a bunch of obscure Doctor Who facts photocopied onto coloured paper and stapled together. There was probably a badge. And, of course, the sense of belonging to the club of people who cared about Doctor Who more than ordinary people. Since then, politics has become the more prominent interest in my life. Doctor Who less so. And while I might subscribe to some political publications, even go to events where politics is the theme, I've never joined a political party. That's partly because, as a journalist, I don't want a paid-up allegiance, like an oath of affiliation. That feels, to me, like a cognitive conflict of interest when trying to make judgments about what's going on at Westminster. Also, I'd be no good at it. I wouldn't be able to stick to a party line. It's, it's just not my thing. I change my mind too often. I'm Raphael Bear, by the way, and thank you for downloading this episode of Politics on the Couch, which is all about parties, the political kind, what they're for, and who they're for. Democracy needs parties, and parties need members. The system relies on activist energy. The, the passion of the fans is the fuel that keeps it all ticking over, so the rest of us get vibrant, pluralist politics. We need people who want the badge, who want to be part of the Labour or Tory Appreciation Society. But that takes a level of engagement, a commitment different to other kinds of political participation. As someone who considers himself pretty engaged, I'm interested in what motivates people to take the extra step, what they get out of it, and whether they're being political in a different mode to the rest of us. To grapple with this question, I turned to Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and author of a number of fine books on politics, the latest of which, out this very month in fact, is The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. This very month is March 2023, by the way, if you're listening at any other time in any other month. Now, alongside his expertise in conservative history and ideology, Tim is a co-runner of the Party Members Project, which collects data and studies trends in membership of the UK's biggest political parties. Their work is a great resource on who those members are, what they do, what they think, and also how the politicians themselves view their members, what they want and sometimes fear from their grassroots. It's one of the most important and under-analysed relationships in politics, which is why I invited Tim to put it on the couch. To kick things off, I asked what members are getting for their membership. Presumably it's more than the fanzine. What is the product they're purchasing when they become paid up, card-carrying party people? you get the chance to express yourself. And actually, that is quite an important motivation for people joining parties. Uh, they want to tell a story to themselves and to the world in some ways about their own values. You also get the chance, hopefully, to 
help that party get into power and to stop its opponents getting into power. And that ideological incentive, that policy incentive is quite important. And then there are certain social incentives, if you like. Some people just like doing the kind of things that people in political parties do. Uh, they like uh, getting on with uh, the tasks, but also getting on with the people who do those tasks. So they like the social network that it gives them. And then there are a few people, but they are only actually a minority of people who are very much into it because of the career benefits that it might have. Perhaps they want a career in politics itself, or perhaps they want to know people who are involved in politics because it might help them get on in some other form of career. So there's a whole bunch of things, really. What does the party then get for it? I mean, you've contributed to a book called Foot Soldiers, which is all about the subject. And and that implies that the the members are the infantry of uh, a political army. What does that... So what do you... You know, if I'm a Conservative leader or a Labour leader, I I want lots of members for all sorts of reasons. Presumably they're giving me some money. But what's in it for me? Because I say that because a lot of MPs have said to me, Frankly, my members are a bit of a pain in the backside and I have to sort of be nice to them. But actually, life would be a bit easier if I didn't have them on my case all the time. Yeah, I mean, there is a kind of common wisdom out there that parties aren't particularly interested in members anymore. But actually, when we talk to staffers and indeed MPs, although they did talk about the downsides of having awkward members, they also made the point that actually without members, parties would just become, if you like, hollow vehicles, um, PR companies, if you like, for the for the promotion of ambitious individuals. And they felt that that would leave politics without a soul. Uh, they also obviously do need the money. I think, you know, it's right to bring that up. And they need people to actually do the donkey work that otherwise they would actually have to pay Uh, large amounts of money for uh, companies to do. And that includes obviously delivering leaflets, but it also includes canvassing voters. And canvassing voters, as you know, isn't just about persuading them to vote for you. It's actually about finding out where they are so that on election day, you can actually uh, get them to the opinion, get them to the polls to um, to cast their ballots. So there are some pretty uh, instrumental reasons, as well as um, you know the, this this idea of the party members being the soul of the party, and also there is a degree of legitimacy I think that party members bring. If you are a party without very many members or uh, any members, I think it's more difficult I think to argue to the general public. Uh, that uh, you are, if you like, a legitimate political party. I think, uh, rightly or wrongly, the the public still think that uh, parties should have members and therefore the more you have, perhaps the more representative and and more dynamic uh, you are. If you're losing party members, on the other hand, it looks as if um, you're in in some sort of spiral of decline. So that legitimacy, I think, is an important factor. There's a there's a huge tension here though, isn't there? Because intuitively that that feels right, you know. And and when uh, parties are able to announce that they are gaining lots of members, they make a big song and dance of it. And when it's thought that they're losing members, they don't tell us how many they've got, and they're a little bit embarrassed about it. But I mean, I'm just thinking of the experience that Labour had under Jeremy Corbyn, where very obviously there was a surge of membership, and people were very enthused by the Corbyn project. Uh, and that seemed to reveal this other tension between the Labour identity of people who felt very strongly that they were part of a Corbyn movement uh, and they wanted that to be a sort of a march on government and a distance that a lot of other people felt between that political position, the Corbyn position, and the mainstream of the country. So sort of growing the membership seems to correlate to getting further away from representing the mainstream of the country. I mean, obviously, Corbyn supporters would dispute that analysis. But that, that, what's, your, you know, what's your perception of that? Well, I mean, I think clearly there is a bound to be a tension there in the sense that party members are always going to be more zealous than uh, members of the public and even actually just supporters of that particular political party to, to which they belong. And there is always, I guess, the potential for members to drag a party either to the left or the right of where most of their voters and indeed, you know, voters as a whole uh, are. So uh, that tension, I guess, is inherent in in party membership. I mean, I think it can be overdone, actually. There's an extent to which 
you know, we all buy into this idea that somehow party members and particularly activists are really extreme and that um, MPs and voters are actually much closer uh, together than they are to to the membership. But actually, research suggests that's not the case. If anything, it's the MPs who are more ideological uh, and more zealous than, than the party members. And party members are often slightly closer to party's voters than are the, the MPs themselves. So uh, I think we need to perhaps move away from that conventional wisdom. You know, the, the benefits that party members bring probably outweigh uh, most of the uh, problems that they can cause. But there are, as you say, at certain points in political history, uh, moments where that isn't necessarily true. And I do think, um, you know, when it comes, for example, to the Corbyn Labour Party, that, you know, you, you, that tension, I think, did become unbearable, did become very, very difficult um, for, for the Labour Party and did make it more difficult for them to convince people uh, to to vote for them. What's interesting, I think, about the, the Corbyn era is, you know, who joined the party at that particular point? Um, you know, why did they come into the Labour Party? Uh, and, and also how quickly they seem to have melted away. Uh, and, you know, a lot of what we do in the research is actually talk about why people join and also why people quit. And it's clear when it comes to most political parties, it does have to do um, actually not just with the ideology and the values of the party, but the way that they're embodied by the leader. So Jeremy Corbyn brought an awful lot of people who had left the Labour Party uh, you know, perhaps in the Blair and Brown era, thought it had become too neoliberal, too um, uh, too war fighting, if you like. And they felt then that they got their party back. Uh, but it also brought in a whole bunch of um, people who we call the educated left behind, people who are graduates, but aren't earning the kind of graduate salaries that perhaps they or perhaps their parents expected them to be earning and were basically hacked off with the way that society seemed to be uh, working. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's offer of a new kind of politics, I think, appealed a lot to, to those people. Was there a symmetrical thing happening or has a symmetrical thing happened on the conservative right? I remember MPs in the in the sort of that 2018-19 uh, era where Brexit was still up for grabs and very fraught, complaining that their local associations had become very ukip and there was talk of UKIP entryism. And as I remember from foot soldiers, you slightly sort of debunk that notion uh, that the data doesn't quite support the idea of a massive uh, sort of storming of Tory bastions by swivel-eyed UKIPers. No, it doesn't actually. I mean, the the change in the Conservative Party has largely come about actually uh, as a result of people who were already in there changing their mind about Brexit, um, for example. Um, it is true that actually a fair few um, people who belong to political parties have previously belonged to another political party. If you look at parties as a whole in the UK, um, over a quarter of people who currently belong to a political party will have belonged to a, a completely different party before. It's slightly more the case when you're talking about the smaller parties, so the Greens, uh, the Lib Dems, the SNP, etc. Um, but it's even the case for the Conservatives and for the Labour Party that I think it's around 15% of, of their members have previously belonged to another political party. Now, for uh, the Conservatives, a fair few of those had belonged to UKIP and actually were also supporters of the Brexit Party. But when you actually, uh, you know, crunch the numbers, you find that actually it's only about 3% of Conservative Party members who previously were members of UKIP or uh, and, and around, I think, 3% who are you know, currently supporters of the Brexit party as well. So it, it is a small minority. Having said that, of course, some parties are so small at the local level that it really wouldn't take uh, many people in the particular branch or local association uh, to have that background, as it were, uh, and to be active to actually sway uh, the decisions that that local party makes. So I, I don't want to completely discount it, but I think the idea of blue kip uh, is is probably uh, is probably without foundation. And and that's where your point about hollowing out uh, becomes very important. The idea that if if a I mean it it seems extraordinary that when you think that the Conservative Party uh, can you know constitutionally be entitled to change prime minister mid-parliament because that's the system that we have. Um, but you know, the choice that they make, it turns out to be Liz mm. Truss uh, mm. elected by, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's sort of a fraction of 1% of the overall you know, enfranchised population. Um, you know, that to me seems, uh, you know, to reveal 
a bit of a problem we have in with the idea that the big parties are somehow organically representative of very much at all. Um, has that has that changed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you could argue that in the so-called golden age of political parties, you probably, you know, almost by definition got a more representative party membership. You know, I mean, back in the 1950s, you, you know, you found that nearly three million people belonged to the Conservative Party and that's reduced now to what, around 170, 180,000 people. So, uh, you know, it, it's very much uh, more likely, I think, that the, the party is less representative of the electorate as a whole. Um, having said that, I mean, if we look back at comparisons with research done in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, there isn't a massive amount of difference there. I mean, by that time, obviously, the parties had shrunk considerably. But uh, even then, they were very middle class. Uh, they were tended to uh, be uh, much more likely to be uh, white rather than from an ethnic minority. Uh, there were more men than women. Uh, you know, they tended to live in the south rather than the north of the country. You know, in all sorts of ways, they were demographically uh, unrepresentative, and that that hasn't changed a great deal. But I, I do think you point to uh, you know a, a constitutional conundrum there. You know, if we are to allow um, party members to have the final say on leadership, and therefore. Uh, on the premiership on, on occasions, um, is that a problem given how unrepresentative they they are? I mean, I think it is, but I can't really see any solution to, to that conundrum in that um, we're very reluctant in this country to get involved in policing political parties, in regulating them apart from their finances. Um, you know, we regard them as uh, agents, if you like, of civil society rather than something to do with the state. And you can argue that that's a good thing. Um, but the problem with that is, of course, then parties can make their own rules. And once they've decided to give their members the say over who becomes leader or who doesn't become leader, there's not very much we can do about it. That's interesting. I was wondering about this exact point earlier about whether whether it, you could think of the parties as parts of the UK constitution. And, and specifically, you know, I, I find it extraordinary the way the Conservative Party is so sort of embedded in certainly the English national consciousness as a sort of default institution of government. And yet you were just saying that, the, you know, the, the, describing the decline in Tory membership, that, and that those two things can sort of happen at the same time, that it becomes completely, it becomes much less normal to sort of trot along to your local Conservative Association for a cup of tea and a slice of cake and for stuffing some envelopes. And still completely accepted that you you have you know, decades of conservative government and they get to choose the prime minister and there's less uproar about that than you think there might be. Yeah, I mean, it is a slightly anomalous position, really. I mean, it's partly because we don't have a codified constitution, right? If you actually look around Europe, you'll find, obviously, that virtually all polities have codified constitutions. And in fact, in many of those um parties are accorded a particular role. And in a few of them, uh, there is this demand that you know parties be internally democratic and there's much more regulation of political parties. Um, but even then, um, actually, uh, because some, some parties uh, you know, insist that parties become internally democratic, <laughs> that would probably mean that virtually all parties would have to move towards uh, giving uh, their members the, the, the final say on on uh, on leadership. I mean, I think for the Conservative Party, it perhaps is a particular problem because, as you say, they were, I think, in the golden age, part of the kind of warp and woof of um, uh, of you know British middle class society, if you like. And and I think that is no longer the case. Um, there's clearly still why. Sorry, why is that no longer the case? Where, where did the members? Where did the, all the Tory? Where did sort of the, the Mittelstand of Toryism go? So that's a your tech, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like where, where did, yeah. what, what happened to that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the, the reasons for parties declining, um, they're actually fairly obvious in the sense that, you know, in, in the 1950s, when so many more people were members of political parties, the opportunity for, um, you know, social interaction, leisure opportunities, etc., were so much fewer than they are today. I mean, once it became possible, you know, to, to meet your prospective spouse at a club rather than necessarily at a ping pong uh, event held by the young conservatives. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, membership of the young conservatives began to drop off. I think also, uh, and I think this was the case, for example, for my grandmother, that for many women uh, who weren't working, but were actually capable, obviously, of doing all sorts of interesting jobs and were, were very clever, 
um, you know, because it wasn't done for them to work outside the home, the, the Conservative Party offered a place where they could actually think about stuff, get involved with other people, um, you know, undertake quite complex tasks. Once women began to move into the labour force, um, you know, it, it, that became less necessary uh, uh, as well. And it's also the case that... That's, sorry, that's kind of interrupted. That's a, that's a very interesting point that I'm not sure I've encountered before. Uh, and uh, it's a bit of a leap here, but I, I mean, I've always found it fascinating that the Conservative Party outside of itself is viewed as this terrible force for reaction uh, and uh, you know, containing lots of bigotry and prejudice. I mean, that's the sort of the animus towards the Conservative Party from the left and inside itself sees itself as this wonderful engine for social mobility. And it's always terribly awkward that, you know, the Conservative Party has has produced three female prime ministers and Labour Party's produced none. Um, and, and I wonder whether actually what you've just described it is actually part of that, whether a certain amount of at least... Uh, female upward social mobility or is is part of the culture of conservative party in a way that the the left conception of equality and social mobility hasn't really clocked or is that a stretch well i mean it, it could be the case but of course you know those women have only really begun to aspire to to leadership positions and, and become leaders um as uh, you know, the, this phenomenon that I was talking about, in other words, women having no other place to go, as it were, um, began to to drop off. So, you know, there, there might be something uh, to that. I mean, I think, you know, if you broaden out more, more generally in the Conservative Party, you'll see that although they talk a very good game about, you know, ethnic and, and gender diversity at the top, and it does seem to be borne out in the cabinet and, of course, in the prime ministers um, that the Conservative Party has chosen in, in recent years. Actually, once you go down the ranks in the Conservative Party, uh, it becomes less and less diverse. So, you you know, you've got, you know, quite a few ethnic minority and women ministers, but you've got rather fewer MPs. And then when you look at the activists and the membership, um, you've got even fewer. So uh, I think the Conservative Party, you know, rhetorically has done pretty well to <laughs> to needle the Labour Party about the fact that it's never had a woman prime minister, for example, uh, and it hasn't had many ethnic minority um, cabinet ministers. But, uh, you know, I, I think I think at a base it's it's not as diverse, clearly, as, as the Labour Party uh, is or indeed, you know, some of the other parties, particularly when it comes to membership. Although I have to say that the that Labour and, and the Liberal Democrats aren't that diverse either. Well, exactly. I mean, I was very interested to hear you say that you know, the general demographics are older, south of England, white, male, uh, you know, whereas I think sort of certainly Labour would like to think that its membership is actually young, enthusiastic, you know, new generation. Uh, again, it, you know, was the perception... Of a, a youth quake that got behind Labour under Jeremy Corbyn also a bit overstated. And I know this has been argued a lot and there seem to be slightly conflicting data on, on what actually happened there. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the electorate, that's a more contestable um, point. But certainly when it comes to the membership, um, it was rather inaccurate. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, as you'll remember... Uh, as a resident of Brighton, you know, was often photographed at party conference sort of, you know, marching down the seafront with a whole gaggle of, you know, young enthusiasts behind him. And, you know, we saw Glastonbury and the old Jeremy Corbyn stuff. But actually, if you looked at the people who joined under Jeremy Corbyn, they were generally speaking uh, just as uh, <laughs> middle-aged as, as as parties have always um, been, or at least have been for in, in recent years. I mean, the average age, I think, in, in political parties as a whole in the UK is, is in you know, well into their fifties, uh, and it wasn't that much different uh, under Jeremy Corbyn when people began to join in such numbers. And that's partly, as I say, because there were a whole bunch of people, many of them actually retired or near retirement, who'd left the party in the nineteen nineties because they were hacked off with Blair and Brown, and then came back into it because Jeremy Corbyn had given them their party back. So yes, it, it, it was an illusion uh, in, in some ways, as as you could you could tell actually if you went to conference, you know, there weren't that many young people knocking around compared with the number of middle-aged people no and and yeah i i agree and it was the people who the older people who had previously been outside the conference uh, waving leaflets and and handing out radical socialist <laughs> newspapers were now inside the conference but it was the same demographic of people uh the i mean i'm interested in the the that social dimension then that you, that you described in terms of 
being one of the things you get from being a member of a political party is is sort of hanging out in your social demographic comfort zone and you know making friends you know, making relationships and whether that you know necessarily is a bit of an analog generation sort of social pursuit uh, made obsolete by you know digital technologies i mean you know if you can meet your partner you don't need to go to a club you can meet your partner on an app because you don't need to go to the local conservative association or your local constituency labor party um and whether that connects to a wider problem that the whole party model is based on yeah, a kind of set of analog propositions about how decisions are made and, and voting on motions and compositing god i mean i don't even want to have to explain to listeners of this podcast what compositing is at Labour Party conference and actually that's just going to get a harder and a harder sell to younger people who who want their politics as well as everything else they do to feel a bit slicker and a bit more digital. When you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a dilemma that parties are facing. And it's a dilemma, I think, that's particularly particularly acute when it comes to activism, because as uh, our research shows, actually, in order to get people out uh, and delivering leaflets and canvassing, etc., you do need them to feel part of a, a kind of embedded social network. Um, you know, those who join online and do most of their politics online don't do uh, as much activism as those who you know, feel very much part of this social world. And I think that the challenge for parties to somehow integrate, you know, digital side of things with that, you know, that in real life um, side of, of things. I don't think it's impossible. I suppose I'm more concerned in a way that there's something more profound has happened uh, into the way people want politics to be responsive uh, and that this connects and I'm going to try this might be what they call a knight's move thought in in psychology where you sort of think things are connected and you, you've made a leap and they're not actually connected but I'll try the thought anyway which is that the sort of slow ponderous clunky analog way of doing politics that's certainly expressed through the old party system as distinct from, you know, clicktivism, instant gratification and online culture, that difference is also expressed in the kind of increasing impatience with the whole notion of representative democracy, which is the idea that, OK, you, you, you vote once every four years and then you send your MP off to Parliament, but then they exercise their judgment uh, and you have to be patient and you sit and you sort of take what you're given and you wait to judge whether or not it's worked and then you get to vote again in another election for possibly a different parliament. You, you saw very strongly in the tension between Momentum and the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, you see it a lot now building in the tension between Brexit radicals and the Parliamentary Conservative Party, uh, this idea that it, you, you people aren't satisfied to say, well, I've sent you off Mr. Politician or Mrs. Politician to do this thing, but I'll I'll be, I'll wait and I'll be patient because I understand that these things are complicated. And that did uh, have I have I leapt too far in seeing a connection between those things? No, I don't think that's a stretch at all. I mean, there there is a fundamental problem I think between the fact that in the market now it's so much easier to get what we want when we want it, um, and politics hasn't kept up with that and probably actually can't keep up with that. So there is a mismatch there. I mean, some parties, particularly, uh, you know, 
overseas have tried to do something about that. And if you look at something like the Five Star Movement in Italy, um, you know, that was a party that, you know, deliberately eschewed um, conventional forms of participation and, and membership and went for what they called sort of liquid de democracy. Um, the problem is that in the end, it's just too chaotic. Uh, it's too difficult, I think, for parties to maintain particular positions because they're always feeling that, you know, a certain number of activists can, can vote online to, to change the position. Uh, and it, it just became, I think, very, very um, problematic, particularly for a party like Five Star that, you know, actually um, had aspirations and actually managed in the end to, to get into government. So uh, I think somehow um, politics has to, uh, in some ways, push back against the, you know, that, that dominant uh, mode of thinking. But it's very difficult to see quite how it can do that because it's so pervasive. I agree. As I say, in every other area of our life, um, you know, we, we no longer have to do the, the, the slow boring of hard boards, as, as Weber called it. Yeah, I mean, and, and paradoxically, once you embrace the idea that the, the people should be, should have their will and their view more directly expressed in politics, you end up very quickly moving away from democracy because, and, and that is you know, almost the definition of populism, isn't it? The idea that you can sort of adduce a general will of the people and then you will have a good charismatic leader who can just channel that. And it's very interesting going back to the idea of what you get from being a member of a party. I mean, the Brexit party, you got nothing, did you? I mean, you paid your money. And you got to, you essentially got a badge. And there was no, it wasn't an actual, it's not a party organization at all. It's no. essentially a company. It is. As I understand it. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's a model that actually, in some ways, the, the more conventional political parties have, you know, tried to adopt, um, not particularly successfully. You know, there's this idea of this multi-speed membership party where, you know, you have, as it were, levels of membership. So you have, you know, conventional members, but then, you know, you ask people to pay a little bit less and they become supporters. And they have, uh, or if you're the Conservative rights. Party, that you ask them to pay a few million pounds, they become donors, and you get a seat in the House of Lords. I mean, it's kind of that's <laughs> that, like the, the uppermost tier. Of that's party a rather more direct route to to influence, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't actually worked that well. It has to be said. You know, there there were great hopes that this would pull more people in. Um, you know, and, and Labour tried it as well, but it, it's not really um, worked particularly well. It seems that you know, if people are going to pay, they actually do want something in terms of you know rights uh, to to decide perhaps on policy or at least on candidate selection or at least on leadership selection so it's it's difficult i think for parties to uh, to move towards that. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a tension there for representative democracy because you, you can get to the point where people believe that, you know, you, at one click, they can effectively make their MPs or their candidates, their delegates rather than representatives, you know, and, and not to be too highfalutin about it. But, you know, this does go back to, to Burke's distinction between the, the two, you know, that an MP owing his constituents and indeed perhaps his party members uh, his or her judgment rather than his or her vote. But, you know, if it so inevitable was it that Edmund Burke would come into this, that I actually looked up the full quote earlier. <laughs> so, and, and the date. So, 1774, he told the electors of Bristol, he said, Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment, and he betrays you instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. And that, that quote is, is routinely brought out when people like me <laughs> and you, I think, often want to defend the principle of parliamentary democracy against this the kind of populist notion that uh, MPs should be somehow channeling the will of the people. And it's it, it got live uh, partly because the Brexit referendum was a different type of democratic event and that sort of cut across party positions and parliamentary democracy, but then also because we've had prime ministers, a lot of prime ministers, actually, uh, who get into Downing Street, not by means of a general election. The reason why Rishi Sunak is allowed to be prime minister, why it's sort of legitimate, is because he is the leader of the party who that commands a majority in the House of Commons. And so the king gets to name him as prime minister. That's quite a sort of an abstruse constitutional mechanism. Is it the case that, do you think sort of Britain has intuited and understood that and that's, that's a sort of a part of British political culture enough or, or is it just that ultimately people don't care? <laughs> you know, that he's not good. If he, if he was a total maniac, then his legitimacy would completely fall apart. But because he's actually quite a dull technocrat and he seems to be a bit cagey about his own mandate because he's, you know, he knows it's a bit fishy, um, that, that it's not an issue. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's both probably. I mean, I think, you know, there's a degree of acculturation there and there's, there's a degree of output legitimacy as well. So, you know, as you say, if he were a maniac, there'd be more of a problem and people would be complaining more. But uh, the, the fact is he, he isn't. Although it's interesting when Johnson was in trouble, I mean, very few people, uh, if I remember rightly, referred back to the fact that he was only chosen by, you know, X percent of the uh, British people. But then, of course, he'd had a general election. Um, so I, I, I think... You know, while there may be concerns sometimes, I think, you know, they can be completely put away once somebody wins a, a general election victory. Now, of course, Rishi Sunak um, hasn't managed to to do that um, yet. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the, the real problem with the, the way that the Conservative leadership contests have gone, particularly, you know, in trusts is, is time, is, is the fact actually that, you know, she was unable to command uh, even a plurality of um, Conservative MPs. Uh, and that, you know, you could argue that's just about not the case with Rishi Sunak in the end. Uh, and I think, um, you know, most people's views of politics uh, are, in as much as they pay any attention to them, uh, you know, rather kind of parliamentary focused, if you like. So I, I think if uh, a leader, if a prime minister has the support of their MPs, then quite how many people they got to vote for them in a leadership contest in terms of the membership is less important. One of my favourite polling facts is that, you know, actually, Theresa May's popularity rating was higher towards the end than Boris Johnson's was, even in the run up to the 2019 general election, which he won by a landslide. So, I mean, the way, you know, by accident of the electoral system and various other things going on and the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn in mm. 2019 relative to where he was in 2017, all these things, you constructed this sense that Boris Johnson was hugely popular, um, which he was with a very specific segment of people who propelled him to a massive majority. But this Potemkin phenomenon of the pro-Johnson movement, that's half true of Brexit as well, to the extent that obviously that, you know, there, there was a well-funded, well-organised campaign uh, that successfully captured what was also an, an entirely genuine and organic sense of frustration. Now, whether they captured it and, and harnessed it to... You know, the wrong ends, the, you know, the ends that wouldn't achieve what the people who voted for it wanted from it. That's a different argument, which we can have. Um, but it seems to me that that whole Brexit and Johnson phenomenon, which is a paradoxical combination of very authentic mass frustration with the state of politics and a heist perpetrated by a small number of well-financed people, you know, it could be both things at the same time, uh, is now it, it making... Conservative government impossible. That you, they, the Conservative Party cannot speak to, cannot be both of those things at the moment. I'm not so sure the party is quite as ungovernable as, as some people think, because I, I, I do suspect that, particularly when it comes to the MPs, many of them actually, you know, have got to the point where it's rishi or bust, and they can't really envisage. Uh, you know, another leadership contest, particularly one that features um, Boris Johnson, which I think explains why Boris Johnson didn't actually stand against Rishi Sunak uh, back in, uh, you know, the, the autumn. I mean, we know now that he um, apparently had the numbers to enter the contest, but he chose not to. And that presumably um, was because he didn't believe that the membership in the end would would back him, which I think, you know, tells you 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 quite a lot um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that there is certainly, uh, you know, uh, a kind of myth of Boris Johnson, uh, a myth of the kind of populist, you know, tribune of the people that he's been incredibly good at articulating and incredibly effective at getting other people to believe, despite the evidence of both their own eyes and indeed, you know, plentiful opinion polling. Um, you know, he, he seems not to be touched uh, by <laughs> by numbers in a way, which you know is is given you know how much attention those of us who are really interested in politics do play for, to those numbers um, is quite incredible. Though I mean, you say that he maybe decided not to run because he didn't think the members would back him. I wondered more whether it was because he didn't necessarily want to go back to the position of presiding over a situation that was might be spiralling inevitably towards defeat and he would much rather maintain the myth that had they had Boris they would have been fine rather than prove the point test it to destruction and Louis he's, he's, it's very important to him never to have lost and I wonder also whether although I agree that the parliamentary conservative party is probably at some level more governable the danger of it of getting to a point where 
a few very right-wing MPs become... They do to Rishi Sunak what the sort of UKIP-y switchers uh, did to... I mean, the sort of Douglas Carswell, I'm thinking of those sorts of people, did to David Cameron. Uh, and you get a bit of a resurgence of the Brexit party now called Reform. I mean, it's interesting that hasn't yet sort of taken off. You know, is is there still room for insurrectionary right to annoy the Conservative Party or, or has Brexit sort of just taken the wind out of that? No, I mean, I, I think there is. And I think really the last decade or so in British politics, you know, can only be understood through the prism of, you know, the Conservative Party's greatest fear, which is being outflanked on the right by some kind of insurrectionist, you know, populist outfit. I mean, there's always been that sort of latent fear. I mean, we saw it in the 70s with with even the National Front, I think, although, you know, that was a very different organisation from from UKIP and, and the Brexit Party. Uh, but, you know, the, the one thing that the Conservatives always try to make sure doesn't happen is that, you know, they, they lose votes uh, on their right flank and not because they think they will actually lose seats to these people, but because, you know, as you're well aware, they worry about um, losing votes uh, to them and therefore allowing Labour and Liberal Democrat candidates to, as it were, come through uh, the middle. And, and everything that David Cameron did, everything that Theresa May did, everything that to some extent Boris Johnson did was about stopping that happening. Now, in certain circumstances, I think that made sense. I think in 2019, that made perfect sense. I mean, when you had the Brexit party winning 30% in European elections and uh, the Conservatives winning just 9%, then I think it was an absolute priority to ensure that that didn't happen. I think now things are very different, but the mindset is still there. So while you know it's self-evident, I think, to most of us that the Conservatives should be far more worried about losing votes, as it were, to the to the centre, uh, to, to the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, uh, there are still many MPs who worry more about losing votes to um, to reform UK. I mean, it- although that's rational in you know because so much of the electoral arithmetic in particular seats is a function of first past the post. So, you know, if if a thousand voters in Workington go to reform or stay home or whatever, then by the dynamic you described, that becomes a problem for the Tory, even if they're not going to Labour. And brings us back to a sort of an earlier point about whether or not parties and party identities actually describe a real sort of component of British or English national culture, or just an accident of an electoral system that corrals people who don't actually like each other that much uh, under the same uh, flag. Because it is interesting, whenever you have given the electorate a chance to express itself by means other than first past the post, they quite quickly choose parties that aren't Labour and Tory. I mean, that's how the SNP completely took over Scotland, you know, initially through a more proportional system. UKIP you know, it, European elections was its was its way in. That's not really a question, but it's just an observation. But I, I mean, I think it's a very important observation, and it does explain, for example, why although the Labour Party now seems to have voted at least at a conference for proportional representation, you probably won't see it being introduced by a, a Labour government because there is this fear, and I think you know uh, from from what you say, quite legitimate fear that that will just bust the current party system uh, apart. Now, there certainly would be very big changes um, you know, to, to the party system. I don't think it would necessarily spell the death of the two major parties. I mean, if you look at what happened in New Zealand, for example, when it changed its electoral system in the early 90s towards you know, the, the German-style electoral system, you still see there that although you have seen the growth of minor parties, um, actually National, which is the equivalent of the Conservatives and Labour, which is obviously you know, the equivalent of the Labour Party, are still the dominant parties in in that system. So uh, I think, you know, while it is true that there's an extent to which first past the post slightly imprisons people into, you know, voting uh, for um, candidates that they wouldn't otherwise vote for, I, I don't think it's true to say that, you know, that um, Labour and the Conservatives have, have got no sort of genuine uh, supporters. I think they, they still would retain them. You brought up this question of identity. And one thing we do know from, you know, decades of research is that, you know, the extent to which people now feel, you know, uh, some kind of identity, some kind of closeness with political parties has shrunk markedly over decades. So the the electorate is far more um, volatile and, you know, far more, if you like, in play 
than used to be the case when you know people's voting was very much more determined, for example, by their their class position. So, um, it, you know, it, it is the case that uh, uh, I, I think proportional representation, uh, and as you said, you know, historically it does seem to be true, would would make a, a difference. But I'm not sure it would explode things uh, to an extent that we just would no longer recognise politics anymore. That's interesting. I, I hadn't sort of investigated that New Zealand comparison before, because certainly I know Labour people have said to me that the reason Keir Starmer isn't hot on proportional representation is that he has been persuaded by this argument that very quickly, if you do that, a sort of a socialist left Corbynite Labour Party and a centre left liberal Blairish Labour Party just the, the fact those are two different organisations very quickly becomes apparent and, and rips the party in half, as could easily happen to the Conservatives too. And that point that you made about the decline in visceral allegiance, specifically under a red or a blue banner, makes me wonder whether that is happening because of something to do with what the parties are offering or whether there is actually something it's sort of a, a social cultural difference of wanting to be part of a party uh, and as a reason well i suppose what i mean by that is you know do we know if there is as it were a sort of a personality type a, a sort of a joiner type who wants to be part of a political party uh, are there fewer of those people or is it you know there are as many joiners but it's just the proposition that the parties are offering it isn't attractive anymore we would like to do more research on that um, because, you know, though we've got quite a good idea about the sociology and the ideology involved, we haven't actually got very much idea about the the, the personality types. And I, I think it is probable that, you know, some people are just more, if you like, gregarious uh, and more extroverted and more inclined to work with other people. And, and that might well bring them in into um, political parties. But uh, that, that wasn't exactly your question. I mean, I, I think... There's a degree of individuation that's gone on in society over decades, which means that you know people are are perhaps less inclined to uh, buckle down to the the kind of collective will of a particular organisation, and you know do feel that you know their their individual preferences are more important than to some extent suffocated in any any collective. I think I think that's there, but I think it is also the case that um, you know you you can argue that the, that the parties you know don't offer the same if you like, cultural differentiation. They don't offer the same uh, policy differentiation um, that they used to. I mean, we haven't now got a party that is offering a kind of complete socialist transformation of society, for example. So, uh, you know, th th and that means that... Oh, and interesting. And, and as something we were saying just before we came on air, as it were, you know, there isn't a party offering... Uh, to immediately rejoin the European Union. Uh, and there are an awful lot of people who I encounter often on the internet and in real life who, for whom that is still a defining feature of their, their political demand right now. The, Lib the Liberal Democrat position, you know, for whom that might be uh, you know, a, a sort of place they could go, it is remarkably similar, as I understand it, to the Keir Starmer one, precisely because they have seats that... They have to try and win back in the southwest of England, which were traditionally kind of classical liberal and then Lib Dem, but actually quite Brexity. I mean, I think, you know, going back to party members, I think one of the very interesting things about Brexit for the Conservative Party is actually the rise of the influence, if you like, of the celebrity politician. Um, because if you if you look at you know our polling of Conservative Party members when Cameron was leader and before he came back with the deal from Brussels, um, a, a majority of party members, if I recall rightly, were saying, "Well, let's just see what Cameron comes back with, and then I'll make up my mind about how to vote uh, in any referendum." And then two or three years later, you say <laughs> you get you know po polling of party members saying, "Well, I'd even tolerate the breakup of the the you know the UK and indeed the Conservative." party in order to get Brexit. Now, how do you explain that? I think in part, you must explain that because of the sort of celebrification of, of uh, internal party politics, because, you know, people like um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, Boris Johnson, who, of course, was not um, prime minister by then, um, you know, managed to kind of capture the hearts and minds uh, of party members and, and change their view on policy. There's, there, there aren't many other obvious explanations for that very big shift. That's a really interesting point. And I think it, and it connects to something also very interesting that you said a moment ago about people not being so inclined to submit to a party line, which I think is a very important feature of this, that the, the sense that you know, the idea that you know, if you'd been a foot soldier of a party in the past, 
your job, you know, was to was to go out and deliver the message uh, and and persuade people. And the fact that you might have a dissenting opinion, well, you'd have to work your way up the ranks to earn the right to express that, you know. Um, and yeah, that's a that's partly a function of the end of deference and other social changes. But there's a big difference between being a fan of Boris Johnson, you know, and, and, and being a member of a party where you're essentially part of a fan club yeah. for an individual, yeah. or, or you, know, you like the Jer- Jacob Rees Mogg podcast or whatever it is, uh, or you like you know, singing Oh Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury and submitting your own will to the demands of the party. That feels to me like a very yeah, 20th century idea of political organisation that I don't think a lot of people are really on board with anymore. No, and I mean, it, it also touches on this so-called presidentialization of, of British politics that a lot of political scientists and indeed a lot of commentators um, talk about. I mean, you know, the, the fact that actually perhaps leaders now play a more important part in, you know, voters calculate, um, you know, when it comes to uh, deciding who they're going to vote for, which party they're going to vote for uh, at general elections. But I think it also applies to to um, party members as well. I mean, there's an extent to which, you know, in the Conservative Party, clearly um, uh, th- there's a conflation in, in some people's minds between being a member of the Conservative Party and what that entails in terms of, uh, you know, responsibility to the collective uh, on the one hand, and being, as you say, a fan, <laughs> a stan of uh, of, uh, of Boris Johnson uh, or Jacob Rees-Mogg or, um, you know, uh, whoever, Suella Braberman or Priti Patel or, or whoever, um, you know, that that is. And it's very interesting to think that they, I get no sense that you have that around Keir Starmer. And yet, on you know, on current polling trajectories, he's on the way to becoming the next prime minister. And, and, and you know, well, and certainly the same actually for Rishi Sunak, who is currently the prime minister. So is the sort of the tide turning a little bit on that? Or, or do you think people are, are we tired of that type of politics? Or, or, or is, or is the current sort of, slightly more technocratic, for want of a better word, centrist moment, uh, a respite before the next charismatic populist nutcase, for want of a better word, sort of seizes the agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of quote unquote reasonable people are hoping that it's the former rather than latter. But I, I rather suspect that, you know, if we get another charismatic politician coming along um, in, a, in a few years time, we'll be talking about, you know, the 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 rise of populism a, a, again. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily... Um, you know, this is uh, a permanent change. But I do think there is a degree of fatigue, obviously, with, um, you know, some of the shenanigans that have gone under, under particularly populist um, politicians, both Corbyn and uh, and uh, Boris Johnson. And so, you know, I'd say it was temporary rather than permanent. We're, we're slightly out of time, but if you could think of a forthcoming book you might want to mention uh, invo- that would describe particularly the, what's happened to the Conservative Party in recent years uh, that, you know, that touches on all of these issues uh, that might be connected to yourself, Tim, we'd be happy to mention it on our podcast. Well, very kind. Yes, there is a book coming out in March called The Conservative Party After Brexit, uh, Turmoil and Transformation. I think, you know, those two um, words don't really need much explanation. And and actually what it is, uh, is a, a book about whether the Conservative Party has moved from, you know, the, the mainstream centre-right towards being some sort of ersatz populist radical right party and whether that's a, you know, a stable uh, um, move for the Conservative Party to make uh, and whether it's good for British politics as a whole. And spoiler alert, is it? <laughs> well, I think it's gone some of the way towards uh, that, but I don't think the transmogrification is is complete. And in fact, I hope it isn't. Uh, I rather. There's fi- a great pun there, transmogrification. <laughs> uh, was, that, was that deliberate? You know, no, the, the, no, it should have been. I'll trademark it now. It's been an as I knew it would be a, a really stimulating conversation uh, well thanks very much for having me Raphael 